to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the show, and we have a very special conversation for you this week. Of course, I'm speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Olga. But I'm also very excited to welcome to the show for the first time journalist Peter Hirschfeld, who is from Vermont Public and is also the State House reporter for Vermont Public. And so we really get to go nutty and wonky on journalism and State House reporting today. I am so excited you're here, Peter. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Olga. Let's start with. Okay, so back up for, for listeners. When Emily and I were discussing what to talk about for this episode, she mentioned having seen Peter's bio on the Vermont Public website that basically says, hey folks, I'm your eyes and ears at the State House, so let me know what's important to you. Send me feedback, send me news tips, just let's talk. And Emily, you found that really intriguing, and I'd love to know more because as a fellow journalist, I was like, well, uh, yeah, of course, <laughs> right? Eyes and ears, that's your job. <laughs> no offense. I mean, first I have to confess. So the idea of interviewing the person who always interviews me is very exciting. <laughs> and once Heard about a year, fair play, so don't hold back. <laughs> absolutely. And, um, and once a year on the Vermont Leadership Institute, which is a program of the Snelling Center, does a panel in Montpelier and they ask me to come and I'm sort of the facilitator of a bunch of different journalists and Pete's always on that and it's always just really fun for me to sort of think about the other side of the mic but for me you know I think of myself as the voice of the people in Montpelier right that's my job that's what being a representative is in many ways and I think of myself as the voice and the ears and, but not, I don't know. It was just like sort of the synergy of Pete being the eyes and ears and how the choices that I make about what's interesting to me might be so different than the choices that he makes about what might be interesting to him, even though we're hypothetically serving the same purposes for democracy in a lot of ways. So that's why it struck me. It was also just like really philosophical, which is unusual in a bio. And it was on NHPR, not VPR, which was extra. Oh, I found it on VPR. Oh, okay. So anyway, what's your thoughts on that, Peter? It's interesting, Emily, you were saying, I I think of myself as the voice, and I do too. And so I think there's these these like different sensory apparatuses that we are using. (laughs) And so like, you're the voice, and then I'm the eyes and the ears. (laughs) And somewhere in this analogy, somebody else is like the central nervous system, right? Like, I think the administration is the hands, maybe. Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah. I do think that there are like fascinating corollaries from physical ecosystems to social ecosystems. So like, I think there's something there, right? There's all these different symbiotic relationships that are involved in the, you know, natural organic deterioration of a fallen tree into soil. And I feel like there's, let's use the state house as an example. There's an almost equivalent, ecosystem of different organisms playing different roles and they all need each other in order to to have like the the healthiest and most desired outcome so what is the role of the reporter in that ecosystem i think in a lot of ways we exist to 
transmit relevant information to people that don't have time to be in the building every day so that they can participate to the extent that they want to. In the building, you find different constituencies serving different interests all the time. You know, there's lobbyists who are representing the interests of their clients. My client, for lack of a better word, is Vermonters that might care about what's going on in the state house, either because they have a general interest in the impact of public policy on Vermont writ large, or they have a particular interest in a specific policy that could be of significant consequence to them financially, possibly. They're folks that have concerns about regulations. So the way I approach the job is, I think, what would somebody who can't be here right now watching this testimony or watching this bill introduction, what would they need to know in order to decide what they think about what lawmakers are contemplating doing? And then I collect that information and I present it to them. Like over time, I've come to think of it almost like brick lane. Do you know what I mean? It's like you've got to get these different pieces and then you've got to assemble them in a way that creates some sort of like architectural coherence. And then you bring that to folks so that they can either read it or listen to it or watch it or not and then decide what they want to do with that. And, and you know, that's what we call an informed citizenry, right, which is what we need in order to have a, a healthy and effective democracy. And so that's what that's what we strive to do. How do you stay fresh in your perception of what the public wants to hear or what they might know or not know? I'm, you know, actually, I think it was our last episode. I was talking about how maybe it was, I don't know, it was sometime recently, how I feel like the longer I work in Montpelier, the harder it is for me to translate my ideas into plain language for normal people or to have a sense of sort of what people are already aware of or not aware of. The further and further I come away from a time when I might not have even, you know, voted in a local election. Yeah, I, it's you're it's like really you are part of that ecosystem now. It's it's a difficult thing, you know. I find myself like two years ago, like writing stories about a specific bill and getting to a point in my understanding of the issue where I'm talking about people waiting, as though that's like <laughs> a concept that matters to anybody out there, right? And and I'm talking here about this legislation that Representative Kornheiser played a pretty significant role in that had to do with creating what what lawmakers said would be a more equitable education funding formula in the state. Anyhow, point being, I fall victim to state house speak all the time. I think it's an inevitability, like when you're a human in an environment, you adapt and assimilate to it. And so what I rely on is gut checks from editors that are not in Montpelier every day who are able to say, dude, like, what are you even talking about here, right? <laughs> what does a sentence even mean? What do these words even mean? What do they signify? Why um, are they and they're, <laughs> yeah, and, and they're right. To most people, those words signify nothing. And, and so then you have to start over and you have to sort of pull yourself out of that bubble and think fresh about what are, what are the concepts on the table here? Not what are the words that lawmakers are using to describe these concepts, but 
strip down to the bare studs, what are we really talking about here? And oftentimes when, when you do get right down to it, you're talking about really fundamental philosophical questions about the role of government in Vermonters lives and where government ought to intervene in our lives and where it shouldn't intervene in our lives. And it turns out those are really profound questions that when you when you can separate that from sort of the, the testimony of the day, it creates an opportunity to have some fun and important and meaningful debates amongst ourselves as a state about how do we want, how do we really want to organize ourselves? What does it mean for 660,000 people to share space and share an organizational system that is going to govern our lives and have a lot to to do with the way we experience our day to day? Thank you for that, Pete. I'd like to add another layer to Emily's question in that And this is something I have found just as a municipal reporter in Wyndham County, that how do you keep perspective on the people that you spend probably eight hours a day with, five days a week? You know, you get to know these lawmakers, and I'm sure some of them, uh, and you form opinions, like how do you remain, keep your perspective when you're in such a closed environment with these folks so that you can still hold them accountable when necessary and yet give them the benefit of the doubt when necessary. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I guess my like general tendency is to give, I'm just like, I just give people the benefit of the doubt. Like I assume that nobody is coming. And this is probably like a flaw of mine as a reporter, but like you have to show me or a, devious, duplicitous, deceptive person before I'm going to assume that that's what you are. And and of course, that doesn't mean that you don't, you know, stress test different ideas or fact check things like all of that. But like, I assume, I think most people are decent human beings. And so I assume that most lawmakers are decent human beings until, until they reveal otherwise. But, you know, I'm not, there's a universe where like based on the amount of time that I spend with people in Montpelier that like, we're good friends. Do you know what I mean? Like we're hanging out, we're socializing. Like there's so many people that I interact with on, on a, on a day-to-day basis in the state house that like, I wish I could be friends with, you know, Yeah. it's not a road you go down and there's, I, I don't know, maybe that's a little bit sad, but just remembering like, this isn't an, an inherently adversarial relationship, right? Not, not always, but like, we're there to challenge, probe, and create discomfort. There are a lot of times when people don't want to talk about why their idea might not be the right one. And it's our job to to force that conversation to the extent possible. So there's that. And then there's also acknowledging that I am a creature of that system. You know what I mean? I can't pretend like I'm not. Anybody who spends that much time in that space is going to be affected by it in ways that they aren't fully aware of. So I just need to be aware of that myself. Just know that my proximity to that universe is inevitably going to affect the way that I perceive what's coming out of there. 
and so I just try to be as honest as possible with people about that and rely on editors and colleagues to make sure that that doesn't unduly influence the, the work that I'm doing. Emily, so Peter and I had a little chat yesterday, just, you know, uh, talking about the show. And that was one thing I brought up with him about proximity is sometimes I am very glad that I'm not based in Montpelier for, for the purposes of this show, because I, I hope it keeps a fresh perspective. And yet it, sometimes I also feel it's a disadvantage because I, I'm, I'm not in the minutiae like you and, and Pete are. And, and I sometimes wonder like what kind of effect that might be having on the show as well. No, and I'm definitely aware that like, you know, the ideas I bring to the show are the things that I'm interested in. And there's like a vast swath of state government, you know, like the entire transportation system that I just like don't tune into very much. And I think it's really, you know, I think this question of like being by its very nature, adversarial relationships is really a complex one in Vermont, Mm -hmm. given how tiny a state this is and how much we all see each other everywhere and know each other everywhere. I think that's true legislator to legislator. I think, you know, with lobbyists and like, I think that in the entire ecosystem up there, I think in other states, it's a bubble because it's elitist and staffed to such a degree. And I think in Vermont, it's a bubble because we're all just like living and breathing each other's nasty germs all day long. And sorry, I've heard about like so many people getting sick just the first week already. <laughs> like a little nervous it's like about going, going back. back to kindergarten. Everybody, gets it is sick. really. I mean, I I really hate that metaphor so much. People use it all the time because I don't I don't want to um, encourage us to infantilize each other more than we already do. <laughs> but it does create a really interesting issues on sort of what we focus on, what we're interested in what we trust because we are like humans first and humans are relational people. Mm-hmm. And we're also self-interested and we were compelled to do nice things for people that do nice things for us. Right. Yeah. Like that's the way we work. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no getting around that. Yeah. And so then I think you just have to create systems and structures that acknowledge and accommodate that. Right. Mm-hmm. To make sure that that's going to happen. That's mm-hmm. the way we are. So how can we organize ourselves in ways that don't allow that natural tendency to to take us to places we don't want to go? Mm-hmm. And yeah. for you, Pete, you know, just in the spirit of media education or media literacy, it, it sounds like part of your buffer zone are your colleagues. Yeah, colleagues, but also so engagement journalism is sort of this buzzword right now and a lot of news organizations are deep into their experimentations with with engagement journalism. It's something we started embracing, gosh, probably five years ago in earnest. And we've created modules that allow people to reach out directly to us. That bio that you were talking about, there's a link on there where it says, do you want to tell Pete Hirschfeld what you think he should be covering? Do you want to tell him what you think he got wrong, what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear less of. And that's a direct line of connection between somebody who has clicked on that story and read what I had to wrote and me. And I see everything they have to say. And let me assure you that it is an incredibly useful tool for me, both in terms of gathering information from people who have knowledge, special knowledge of something that I'm writing about, but it also 
helps me know what people want me to be focusing on stuff that I might not necessarily have thought of on my own. So yeah, it's the editors, it's my fellow reporters here, but we're doing better and better at creating a through line between individual reporters and the audience that they're serving. And it's not perfect and it probably never will be, but it's gotten a lot better. And it's one of the really exciting things that, that we're doing, I think. I know you all are also doing, and maybe this is part of the same project, you're doing a lot of analysis of your sources and where you seek out information. Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so source tracking is is sort of an ever-evolving element of what we do, but the sort of the threshold premise is that the voices that you hear on Vermont Public, in order for our organization to be the truest representation of the of the state we serve, the voices that we include and amplify need to be a sample representation of Vermonters as a whole. And so we collect information um, related to education levels, related to geography. What zip code do you live in? How do you identify racially? And so like I said, it's an imperfect process, but it forces us to think about that. You know what I mean? And and mm-hmm. the act of thinking about it and making sure that that's something you're thinking about. Who am I talking to for this story and why? And who's not in this story that could be that I haven't thought about yet? So it's just a it's a useful practice to sort of trigger that kind of thought because it, it's incredibly easy to just sort of fall into this rote system of I need a lawmaker and I need a industry representative and then I'm good to go. Mm -hmm. So curious, Pete, this is a question I get a lot from from readers is of all the things that you could write about at the State House, all the different pieces of policy, how do you decide what to follow? I mean I'll start with the sad answer to that question which is there are times when, you know, we have to make content, right? Like we're in the business of creating content Mm -hmm. and we have a certain amount of content that we have to create to put out on our airwaves. And so sometimes that decision is driven by, I'm not going to go out and get garbage, right? I'm not going to like try to give you garbage, but but expediency is absolutely a consideration Mm -hmm. sometimes. So I'll just be honest with people about that, right? Sometimes it's because I know I can go to this hearing and I'm going to get some compelling voices on a compelling issue. And it's the most obvious way for me to fulfill my obligations to my organization in terms of what they need from me to fill out the newscasts for that day. But more often, it is sort of learning about everything that's going on in the building and then thinking about which of these policies have the potential to have the the most profound impact on people. And you could measure that in the force of the impact on a small number of people, right? It could have a huge impact on a small number of people, or maybe it's a policy that it has a less pronounced impact, but it's going to affect thousands of people or tens of thousands of people, or in some cases, hundreds of thousands of people. So it's not like a set calculation, but what's going on here that's going to matter to people in a concrete way and then sort of going after the things that 
you know, any reasonable person might think, well, this obviously is going to be the thing that people care about because it's going to mean X, Y, or Z for them. How do you figure out what's going on? So, you know, every Sunday night I read the complete agendas for the week. So I see what every committee is going to be working on all week. And then I spend a lot of time gossiping in the hallway <laughs> with reporters, with lobbyists, with my colleagues. How do you figure out what's going on? In some ways, our job is very similar, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, that's that's it. The agendas can be really helpful in terms of not just seeing what's happening when, but the fact that something is happening, right? Like if you see a committee that's taking testimony on something for more than a day, interpret that as meaning this is something that a critical mass of people on that committee care about and that they have a real interest in moving. Committees generally don't spend a lot of time talking about things that they have no intention of doing anything about. And then similarly, Emily, it's like, I, I talk to lobbyists. I'm like, what's, you know, what's the thing that you're really focusing on this year? I talk to lawmakers. What's like, what's the thing you're hoping to come out of here with this session or, or a few things. And just, you talk to enough people and you start to see certain things overlapping. You, you see themes develop. And so, yeah, it's just, you know, old school analog information gathering for the most part. For both of you, I'm a little curious, what do you wish for both of you could be different about your jobs and how you connect with your constituents? First, I want to say after the break, I would love to talk about how we tell the stories that we tell and about sort of the quest and the journey and the battle and all of that. I would like to have a lot more capacity to talk to people um, and really show up to have conversations in people's lives in a way that fits into their lives, especially, you know, I have a lot of constituents who listen to VPR. Beyond that, it's a wild scattershot of how folks get their information. And I want to be there in those places so that folks can actually understand what the, how the work we do impacts their lives. And so I can know what to do. And I cannot do that without staff. And I don't have any staff. How about you, Peter? Fashion, it's so interesting that you say staff and you don't have staff. The thing that frustrates me is there aren't, there aren't more of us. Mm. I think about something like healthcare, right? Digger has a dedicated healthcare reporter. Vermont Public will be in the near future. But here is a $6 billion a year industry that is in... <laughs> In a lot of ways, one could argue on the verge of a catastrophic collapse, potentially. <laughs> and we don't have an independent entity sort of working day to day to see what's going on, right? To really look through it. That's that's wedded to no special interest other than what matters to Vermonters. And you could pick any number of sectors in Vermont. We could deal with a lot more reporters. Unfortunately, the, the business model doesn't exist to support that right now. But that's my frustration is I just see so much going on that would that would benefit so much from somebody asking important questions on behalf of Vermonters. And, and that's not always happening where it ought to be, probably. I really agree. And um I'm sort of I sort of skipped a step of um, like having more imagination because there was this amazing six months when the Brattleboro reformer had a dedicated 
state house reporter and it was amazing and i am just imagining that if i had more staff they would be able to talk to our local reporters from the commons and the reformer about what's going on in Montpelier because they don't have time to be paying as much attention as would be helpful for our constituents. But to just have reporters doing it instead of me having to interpret it would be even more magical. We at the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro are going to take a pause and hear from some of our underwriters. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host and producer of the show, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro, as well as Pete Hirschfeld, who is the State House reporter for Vermont Public. Very happy he's here today. Want to thank BCTV for sharing the video version of our show with media centers around New England. Thank you very much, BCTV, for all your work. And just want to remind folks that you can find the happy hour every Friday at 2 on WVEW, as well as rebroadcast on Wednesdays and, of course, wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Hey, Emily, what are we going to remind listeners of now? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, not the station, nor their employers, friends, pets, neighbors. Why, thank you. Welcome. So Pete, curious, of all the professions you could have chosen, what brought you to journalism? It's not a really, it's, <laughs> so I went to, I grew up in Vermont and went to school at a liberal arts school in Maine graduated with an English degree and was just driftless, young, 20-something hedonist, basically. And so went on these, you know, sort of my walkabout. I lived in Los Angeles for a while and didn't know what I wanted to do and was totally horrified by the grind. I worked in high school and college, but this was the first time I had to work like 40 plus hours a week to support Mm -hmm. myself. And was just miserable. And so was looking for something that seemed like it might be fun and that I could get a job with, with an English major and no experience in anything and found reporting and gave it a shot. And I didn't love it. I didn't have like a love for it, a passion for it, but I was able to pay my bills barely and didn't have to be at a certain place at a certain time every day doing the same thing. It's just like, You know what I mean? Some days you're working from 10 a.m. to 11 o'clock at night. And some days I would work from noon to 2 p.m. But over time, I started to appreciate it for what it is. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just like a means to an end. And I remember I did a story on corrections and there was this little report that came out and it was like buried in a state government website. But it was about the prison population in the state of Vermont having gone up like 50% over the past five years. Mm -hmm. And I was like, holy cow. So I did this story on it and I got all this feedback and, you know, a lot of inquiries from, from state officials 
who already knew about this, but who wanted to comment, who wanted me to do another story and take it in a different direction. Anyhow, it was this moment where I was like, wow, you can write about something and put it in front of a bunch of people. And it prompts a bigger conversation about what to do about what most reasonable people can agree is is a problem. And it was at that point that it clicked for me, like, oh my gosh, this is, then I did have a passion for it. Do you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. when the passion for it began to grow. And it's like, yeah, this is like really cool and really meaningful. And I want to, I want to spend my life doing this. I appreciate that experience so much because it's similar to how I, I ended up in journalism. I always call myself the accidental journalist because I had been living overseas and had trouble with a visa and came back to the States very unprepared, not knowing what I was doing. And I happened to have gone to high school with Jeff Potter at the Commons. So I just called him up and I'm like, so I know how to write. Do you need anything? <laughs> like I don't know what, I, but, you know, never done journalism, never wanted to do journalism, but I needed a job. And fell into it that way. And it, for me, the story that changed my perspective was I had written a piece about breast cancer. And as part of the interview with the nurses, you know, they were talking about why it's so important for women to get checkups. And the nurse said, and, you know, we don't think about it, but men need to do it too. It's, it's not as, you know, breast cancer is not as prevalent in men, but they really, they need to take care of their health too, and they should be checking themselves as well. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing. Hadn't heard that before. So I threw that into the article. And about three months later, I received a letter from a husband and, and wife team who said, we read that. And as a joke, we kind of, I said, oh, I'll check, the husband said, and they found a lump. And they're like, we would never have even thought about this if you hadn't written that article. And I was like, oh, this is what it means to do someone's life work. <laughs> like, oh my God. Uh, and that's what I think the moment that clicked for me when I could see the impact of my work. Yeah. It's a really like amazing and fundamental, like this framework that we've created where information can be conveyed to large numbers of people. And yeah, there's something amazing about it that, you know, we have this system for getting in important information to people. Oh. Well, Olga has disappeared. Is it that janky internet connection in Whitingham? Is that where she yes, is? Yes, it is. And especially when it snows, sometimes the snow knocks down her little satellite from the evildoers that own her satellite. But she came right back. That was kind of remarkable. Sometimes she has to, like, go out into the snow drifts and, like, <laughs> object. Yeah. You would think that Mr. Musk would have figured that part out, the snow and all, but apparently not. I've been seeing the trucks for the local communications union district going back and forth on my road <gasps> for a few weeks down. I'm like, I might have high speed internet. Yes, I didn't get to finish my profanity filled text to you <laughs> before I came back on. <laughs> anyway, everybody, sorry about that. Sorry for the interruption. What did I miss? I'm sure it was beautiful. It was, you were only gone for like one second. Really very yeah. little happened. I was about to segue to my big question about questing, which is I'm fairly obsessed with lately. Let's do that. And maybe it's because I'm like strangely uncomfortable with direct conflict in some ways, though I'm very happy to disagree with people. 
how do we get people interested in news, right? And, you know, we have these sort of, we can call them Jungian tropes, we can just call them like human stories, we can talk about fairy tales, whatever it is. But so much emphasis, I think, on statehouse reporting is about conflict, like the legislature's conflict with the governor, the House's conflict with the Senate. I'm fairly sure like no normal human could possibly care about the House and Senate being in conflict with each other because no one even knows that like they're separate. But we like all get so sucked into this thing and I'm just kind of bored of it. I don't really have much to say about like things I disagree with the governor about. It's like pretty much almost everything at this point. And <laughs> it's like, not like in the minutia, the minutia, like it's like these basic disagreements about how government should function. At, at this point, and, if and, you agreed with the governor, it would be the news story. Well, that's sort of my, where I'm going. Like what, what does it take to like tell stories about collaboration or unlikely allies or like, ideas, what makes an idea. I was talking to a few legislators on over the weekend at a, our local legislative forum, and they had never heard the phrase, the Overton window, which is basically like the window of like when an idea is possible versus when it's just sort of first raised. Like, what does it take to tell a story about like when reality shifts and when we see that reality shifting, right? Like the house is about to vote on overdose prevention centers and like Three years ago, that felt so far away. And so that's like what I'm like, how do we how do we move beyond the quest? How do we move beyond like the individual fight against the individual, like speaker versus governor, men versus women, you know, governor dad versus like a, whatever, whatever it is. How do we how do we tell a different story and how do we get people interested in a different story? So I think that reporters inclination to focus on tension points is born of a desire to draw people's attention to a place where people are disagreeing over critically important things, where there is a, it's a fork in the road moment, right? When there, where there's conflict, there's a difficult choice. And in the context of the state house, that difficult choice can entail a really critical decision about what direction we're moving in as a state. And so when you talk about, you know, I get sick of all these stories about the House versus the Senate, who cares about that? It's all this inside politics. And when that conflict is about how are you going to raise $146 million a year from every working Vermonter in this state virtually, to pay for a totally reimagined healthcare system. Yeah, that's a that's a story about a fight between the House and the Senate. Sure, that's one way of looking at it. But really, when you get down to it, that's a fight about a much more important question that has like triggered this conflict between the two chambers. So when I'm writing about conflict or my story has a conflict, I'm not thinking about it as a conflict between individuals or a conflict between organizations or groups of people i'm thinking about it as a conflict of ideas that different groups of people both with some power over what's going to happen are disagreeing over what to do about something and i think that that's often the important that's what that decision is going to be is the thing that people need to know about and so that's 
I, I appreciate that. And I think I want to, maybe for me, it's to just even get better at really distilling how those sort of two choices in front of us or 15 choices in front of us actually impact humans, right? So if we're debating about how we're going to raise money, say last year for the child, for to reimagine the childcare system, what do sort of the House and Senate positions mean for people's lives on the ground? I would add to that, though, just a reminder, you know, pulling on my experience in the film industry and fiction and screenwriting, unfortunately, for better or for worse, we have grown up with a storytelling model that is sort of based on conflict, overcoming obstacles, conflict, overcoming obstacle, conflict. And that's sort of, I think, what humans are used to as well in how we define stories is, you know, you hear the hero's journey, you hear the three-act structure, but it's, it's something I think humans naturally look for when they're looking at stories, for better or for worse. And I guess and- I think people are looking for something other than that right now. Like, I think all of, you know, people's favorite new shows or new movies are often really subverting that storytelling structure. But I yeah. live in my own little bubble <laughs> of, you know, seventh wave feminism. And is, is that what they're like, is that what they're coming to us for? You know what I mean? Like people want that, right? But is it our role to be providing that? Or is our role something different? And we do really have amazing, uh, we, we have wonderful human interest stories and wonderful features and, you know, portraits of individuals that are, you know, well, to your point, Emily, often the most clicked on thing on our websites, the the stuff that people enjoy the most and see the most and share the most. But if I have a certain number of hours in the day to do a limited amount of work, my inclination is to not spend that time on directing my energy in places where everything looks like it's going great already. It's about bringing people's attention to issues that are unresolved and and whose resolution could entail some you know pretty significant consequences for them depending on which way it goes and trying well, to let them know that in advance so that they can to the extent that they desire lend their voice to one side or the other and participate in the democratic process well i think often in the state house there is very broad consensus maybe even with the administration and the legislature about the direction that something should go in everyone's on the same page and yet the actual impact for vermonters could be quite dire so if we think about see rewriting certain laws related to how we fund renewable energy right some of the impact of that on ratepayers could be quite dire with sort of people who can least afford its electric bills going up. But if the House and the Senate and the governor all agree on it, because on some level, like, you know, very few poor people are in those places of power or thinking about those people, right? Like, that's how we wind up with, you know, like structural racism. And that's how capitalism flows. There is no conflict because no one even no one who might disagree with it is showing up at the table. And I do um, think you actually yeah. do a good job of ferreting those things out. But I think it's sort of an interesting place where we're moving beyond conflict. It's in some ways like that story that you told about the correction system where it's like, oh, my God, no one's paying attention to this right now. But it is, in fact, like terrible for lots of people. Yeah. I mean, there was an interesting like case study, I think, to be had in 
the motel hotel debate toward the end of last year, you know, there was a time for most of the session where everybody was on board with this plan. Right. And it's, I was talking to one of your colleagues, Emily, last week, who sort of described that experience as this this distortion field that had come over the building and people couldn't see reality for what it was. And I talked to a lot of people who were instrumental in building the coalition that compelled leadership in both the House and Senate ultimately to rethink dramatically its approach to, to, to this program, who learned for the first time what was happening by reading a news story. Mm-hmm. They, they had no idea what was going to happen until they read something in Digger or they saw something on Vermont Public or they saw it on CAX or in a blog. So I don't know. It's just like it's fascinating the way all of us tell ourselves stories and us as groups tell stories to ourselves that often have almost no basis in reality. And, and yet we we believe them. And we all do this. I'm not saying I don't do this. I do this in my mm-hmm. own, of course. But the power of narrative is unending and can be wielded, you know, for good and for bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. We touched on this, Pete, in the first half, but I want to dig down to it a little bit more. And that question around, because I I love where both of you are going around narrative, because I do feel that human beings, by our very nature, are meaning-seeking and storytelling beings. Like, it's sort of how we're wired. And because of that, it's one reason I feel the work we do is very important. And also, we have to be so careful with it. Because if we put an inaccurate story out there, it can have pretty devastating consequences. So I guess my question, too, that I I receive a lot as a journalist is that question of objectivity or neutrality and whether that's actually possible for for people to to be able to sit in that place of of neutrality. What's your thoughts on that? So I think it's. I think objectivity is no longer a useful word to describe what we're striving for as reporters and as journalists and as independent news organizations. I think that there are concepts associated with objectivity that we want to carry forward and retain. But the idea that a single individual can assess in a neutral way a situation or a scenario or a circumstance stripped of all the life experience that they have accumulated up until that point is it's, it's just not possible, right? Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. So excavating, inventorying your own life experiences and the way that's caused you to think about the world, I think is really useful for reporters. And I think it's like important to tell people that that's something that you engage in. I think acknowledging that your life experience is going to affect what stories you cover, who you talk to about those stories, and then, you know, doing everything you can to make sure that your inevitable biases are accounted for in some way, that you're like, you're aware, if you're aware of it, you can work to mitigate the impact of that thing on the way you go about doing your work. But yeah, I don't think there's objectivity 
as we've used the term to describe, you know, the approach to news gathering, I think is, is less and less useful. Yeah, I was actually thinking of this yesterday. And I think for me, what's useful is perhaps the concept of openness, that just being constantly looking for different perspectives and being open to new information, even if it's something that you hadn't considered before is probably the best way to describe it. Yeah. And I mean, different people do different things. Like I don't vote. And the reason I don't vote is because I've read some compelling political science that says that when you make that decision to vote for somebody, when you fill in that oval, you're inevitably more invested in the outcome of that race. You care more about who exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. And so like the thought of covering a race between Phil Scott and Brenda Siegel or Peter Shumlin and Brian Doobie. And then at, at some moment going into a booth and deciding who I want to win, I don't want to do it. And I frankly, like, honestly, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like it does give me some psychic distance from, from the things that I'm covering. I'm I'm not as, inve- I'm not thinking day to day who should win this race i'm thinking about other things related to that race like what are they saying what evidence is there to back that up i don't want to like cover bernie sanders at the democratic national convention if if i'm both i don't know it just feels weird to me anyhow that's just an example of Mm -hmm. like a way in which i have changed the way i participate in our democracy in the hopes that it will make me we're not using the word objective anymore, but a more objective reporter, somebody somebody who's able to not have their own personal bents and biases influence the way they report on something. Well, I think it's a combination of knowing yourself and your own biases and, you know, excavating them and then knowing ways that you can minimize that, which is like, that's a wild story. It's a very good, I'd never really thought about reporters voting before, but it makes a lot of sense. I'm in the minority and I'm not saying that my way is the right way. No, it's just, really For me, that's what works. Yeah. yeah. So Emily, how about, you know, since you were the one who, who said, let's bring Pete on the show and, and talk about some of these things, what's some of the new perspective or maybe new thoughts that you have around telling narratives from the, the state house? Well, I'm just sort of in this constant process myself of re-excavating the freshness that I brought when I first ran for office with the new knowledge I have. And so what it sort of looks to synthesize those two things. And so thinking about storytelling about what happens in Montpelier, really from the perspective of how, you know, how different choices would play out for people's lives is of course something I think about every day and it's something that I actually need to think about thinking about every day. And I need to do a better job of actually talking in that way mm-hmm. and articulating the decision points. One of the things that I really struggle with is when we're still in debate on an issue, I have opinions about sort of the right path to go and need to have those opinions since I do have to vote based on how things will play out for people on the ground. But sometimes I don't win that argument 
And I want sort of enter harm reduction for that other path, a harm reduction strategy for that other path, sort of minimizing what I think is the more negative impacts related to that second path. And I get scared that if I sort of explain both paths transparently to my constituents, and then I wind up on the worst path, that gets uncomfortable for me politically. And I think I want to have, after this conversation, I guess, I want to have more courage Mm -hmm. with like really fully being transparent about those two paths, even if I know that we might wind up on the one that I don't, that might have more negative impacts. Because like, such is life. Mm-hmm. Well, it may be useful to remind constituents that once the path, there's more than one pe- person walking down that path. Mm-hmm. And and it's many footsteps that are kind of building that. And it's not just you being able to make the decision in a vacuum. Yes. And like, frankly, my constituents often really don't want to hear that. Like once I just sort of like wrote a newsletter about like how I was tired and the work was hard. That's like how I sort of launched into the newsletter. And I got like so many emails are like, oh my God, are you okay? Are you going to run again? Like what? And I was like, oh, oh, you don't want to hear that. Okay, cool. Thanks for telling me. That's useful information. Like there are, there are leaders in the state house, current and former who would hear what Emily just said and say, this isn't about what you think. And when you decided to enter this body and be a part of this organization, you made a tacit agreement that you were going to work for the good of the caucus on this, right? Mm. And that what, what courage is, they'll tell you, is setting aside the thing that you think is right because you're a member of a group of people that has decided to governed by consensus and the only way that's going to work is when you lose you let it go and so it's like i don't envy the the tug that somebody like emily feels when she's having to go with the caucus on an issue that she feels strongly they're moving in the wrong direction on and it can go either way like if everybody had done that last year there would not have been a supplementary funding bill passed in June that allocated 20 some odd million dollars to keep the July 1 cohort housed until April 1st. I'm not saying that there was a right policy decision. That came about because people were like, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to say, well, this is what the caucus thinks, so I'm going to go along with it. They, they were like, no. And there are other instances where unity and cohesion in the caucus allow for things to happen that wouldn't have otherwise happened, but a lot of people would look back on and say, well, that was similarly good. So it's a fascinating tension that individual lawmakers have to navigate. And it's it's interesting to see how they how they manage that. Different lawmakers manage that for themselves. And I think there's a difference between sort of explaining the options before a decision's made and being a sore loser once a decision's made. There's also the tension of you know, if I didn't go along to get along sometimes, I wouldn't necessarily have had the power when we were at that compromise point to actually broker a compromise that would have probably kept them, that did keep the motels open, right? Right. And so there's like this, it's, gosh, it is wild and hard work. And I just, I'm committing to telling more comprehensive stories. That is what I'm leaving this conversation with to fully answer your question, Olga. Thank you, Emily. So, Pete, before we head out, what would you like to leave listeners with? What's at the top of your mind right now? Oh, gosh. Well, what's at the top of my mind is what's the the work that I will be diving into after we finish this conversation. But I guess in terms of the topic of the day here, 
is, you know, we're at this, I think, really critical juncture for news generally, you know, public media stations across the country are, are having revenue issues. Vermont public, we're a healthy organization. We're good, but you know, the nonprofit news model appears to be the one that we're going to be stuck with for better or, or worse mm -hmm. in small markets. And so uh, I guess I just encourage people to think about the role that requires them to play mm -hmm. if they care about having a, a thriving media ecosystem. And it means people are going to have to voluntarily pay for that, which people don't customarily do, but just be aware. I just hope folks are aware of the connection between their willingness to financially support news and, and its existence into the future. Thank you. And where can people find your work to follow you? They can go to vermontpublic.org and they'll find my work and, and the work of all my other incredibly talented colleagues. And they should, you know, also be going to VT Digger, does an incredible job covering the state house and other state affairs. Seven days, just incredible investigative work that they've done of late and always. Calvin Cutler, it's WCAX, one of the hardest working people in news, and it's just amazing what he turns around. So go anywhere there's independent news media doing work in Vermont, just like get a, get as much of it as much of it as you can. It's a, it's a fun habit to form. Thank you, Pete Hirschfeld from Vermont Public for joining us today. Hey, Emily, if people wanted to learn more about you, follow your work, where can they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll find links to all the ways to contact me as well as signing up for my newsletter. And of course, you can always reach us if you want to drop us a line at the Montpelier Happy Hour at themontpelierhappyhour at gmail.com. And we love hearing feedback. And on that note, thank you, uh, Pete Hirschfeld. Thank you, regular contributor Emily Kornheiser and the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, which is always welcoming donations as well. We'll be back next week. Take care, everybody.